Information about the world of running, inspiration to fuel passion and excellence, and ideas for making connections and finding community. You're listening to A to Z Running. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Andy. And I'm Zach. This week is great. We have a lot of inspiring news to share about the world of running. I'm glad because we haven't shared anything inspiring or great yet. I mean, it's especially inspiring, I think. Don't you think? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. New York Marathon just happened, so we'll recap a little bit of that. But we are talking this week about training with excellence. And you may think, oh, you've already talked about that, but we're diving into some new aspects of it. It is a very broad topic. So we're kind of honing in, narrowing down, giving you some actionable takeaways. And hoping to kind of wrap the topic up and tie it off nicely, at least in our current understanding. Absolutely. And we also have Adam Hawalka, of course, coming back, who is our expert. Bringing him back. And he is a physical therapist at Endurance Rehabilitation, specializing in endurance athletes. Yeah. So we're working with distance runners and the topic this week being how to do the things that you need to do to avoid the key injuries that are so common among runners. And if you did miss last week, you will definitely want to listen to that because there is some key insight Yep. So he, he gave us the problems last week. This week he's going to give the solutions. Stick around for the end of the episode to hear from Adam. Now let's dive in. And in the world of running, this week we, of course, had the New York City Marathon. So we've got to talk about it, especially because there's some cool things. We don't like to just do the like celebrate just the people who won and ignore everyone else. But there's some other cool things. So Abdi Abnerahman broke Bernard Liette's American Masters Marathon record. Um, his time was 2.11.34. Wow. And he was in top 10. He was ninth place. That's something for an old man. He's flying. <laughs> you know, 42 is old not man. old, know, you guys. He's not an old man. But it is flying for anyone at any point. Yeah, well, um, the sad part about that is he actually just missed the world standard, the Olympic standard, by like... Five seconds. What did you say his time was? The, the two eleven thirty four. The Olympic standard is two eleven thirty, um, and so you can't actually this year you can't really go to the Olympic Games without being right about that. So he's close enough that it's still possible, but that's a bummer. So congrats to Abdi for that. While we're on the topic of Masters runners, some of you might have seen because it's been all over a couple of different uh, running news outlets like Runners World. Um, Sinead Driver, Diver, Sinead Dri- Diver ran. Um, the New York City Marathon, she placed fifth overall as a Masters runner. And, you know, of course, that by itself is something. She was actually at one point leading the race before, unfortunately, taking a wrong turn and having to come back over. So she lost a little bit of time there. But, um, you know, really just that's really just something. However, I wanted to give a little bit more background because uh, it's not quite that simple. And if you were to say to her, not that any of us necessarily know her personally, but if you were to say, hey, great job on that master's finish, you know, that's really something for a master's runner. She might hit you in the face. Possibly. Possibly. And the reason I think that is because she also ran in the World Track and Field Championships earlier this fall. Um, She ran in the 10,000 meters and she finished 14th overall, which isn't all that bad, of course, at all uh, for anyone. She ran 31.25 for a 10K. That's that's so fast. 
But um, not only that, she also broke the World Masters Marathon or 10K record when she did it, uh, the over 40 record in the 10K. And that's really cool. But then when someone said that to her, her reaction was, who cares? <laughs> I'm quoting Runner's World's quote of her. So I wouldn't probably walk up to her and say, hey, that was a really great run for a master's runner. No, because she's good for anybody, anywhere, exactly. anytime. Yes. Exactly. So that's probably the reason that she is feeling that way. The last thing is also to do with the New York Marathon. And this is just an amazing event. It always is. And Runner's World put together an article about some inspirational runners. And I found it very moving. I don't think you can really get far in the sport of running, especially in distance running, without being overwhelmed by some inspiring story. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to mention, there's a few of them. There was a few that were never supposed to walk again. An NYPD uh, officer that wasn't supposed to walk again. She had to learn to walk, and then she ended up running and finishing the marathon. There's also a former army sergeant that crossed the finish line in a, a robotic exco- exoskeleton. Excuse me as I bumble she, over yeah, that. Yeah, paralyzed uh, from the waist down, right? Paralyzed, yes. And New York Marathon, amazing. They allowed for her to do that over three days and completed the last four miles on Sunday this is an incredible feat. She had been training for a year, going up and down stairs, trying to get this robotic to connect with her brain. And there's a lot of science that I don't really understand completely. But Zach, you have a little bit of experience. I, I've with got that, some right? background working with this kind of stuff, just a little bit. So um, when I was teaching at the Aviation Academy High School, um, we were doing some work with this with the robotics department on neural uplink robotics. Wow. Hardware. And so we're talking about prosthetics mostly. That's where the science is devoting its attention largely. And in a situation like this, or even um, like an amputee kind of situation, these the, the technology allows for people to wear a thing or even they're, they're exploring some implants into your head that monitor your brain activity and then control the robotic implement via your brain activity. Oh, so, so you're cool. literally, th- we're talking cyborg level Star Trek technology here. You're literally controlling an implement that you are not attached to in any way except for your brain activity. Yeah. And I love that they revealed in this article, though, that there had been a lot of a training involved to make this seamless, going up and down stairs, uh, making this happen. But this is an incredible story and I think very inspiring. Yeah. And even so you you said a year, her time frame was a year. Um, I want to dwell on that just briefly because think about a baby learning to walk. How long does that take? Right. Yeah. And that's a baby, which, by the way, neuroplasticity of children is super high. So they should be learning things at a much higher rate than adults. Um, the same thing is applying here. Neuroplasticity, because you have to relearn how your brain outputs are operating this 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 foreign body that's somehow connected to you and so yeah she's of course she's having to learn how to how do i think about this leg so that it actually moves up and steps down on the stair or you know across 26.2 miles yeah so it's an incredible feat so congratulations to terry Veriline. so some great inspiration from the front to the back if you will of the new york city marathon inspiring stories abound we could only cover just a couple of the ones that stood out to us but many congrats to everyone who ran and i'm sure that you've got some stories whether your own or some others so we'd love to hear those too if you want to share them
for our main topic this week, we want to dive a little bit further into the topic we've been digging at a bit now for, for a little while, Andy, um, right? We, it, it's been some time now that we've been trying to address this idea of training with excellence. And so in the blog post earlier this week, we tried to break it down and uh, give some tangible things, but we didn't really get super practical or give many examples, um, certainly not our experiences. So we wanted to kind of wrap it up today by doing just that. So really trying to put a bow on how to train with excellence. Now, as I was thinking about training with excellence, I wanted to mention, like, I think the reason that I don't train with excellence is because deep down, I don't believe I'm excellent. Well, you should probably say the reason you don't train with excellence perfectly all the time because you do. Yeah. So I guess I, I guess in times that I don't. So in times that I'm not training with excellence, I I, I think that the, the core of it is that I don't believe that I'm excellent. And I know the culture trend is not to admit self-doubt because it's all about like believing in yourself. But I think it's important to confront the confidence issue. And training with excellence has nothing to do with my self-worth as it's measured by the sport or other people. But it's more about the discipline of running and excellence in my training that really helps my mind and body and spirit flourish. Getting faster is fun. That's great. Getting better is fun. But the holistic objective of pursuing things with excellence is far more important. Yeah. And there's even just the, you know, if we just talk about the psychology of it, um, if I'm going to do a thing, for me to feel satisfied with my effort is very important. Yeah. Um, even just to begin there. Certainly. And I think like, as we talk about form a little bit later, in my form, if my shoulders are hunched, if I am not treating my body with excellence, if I'm not pursuing things correctly, it affects my emotional state. So it also, as we talk about like our emotions and how everything is really tied together, I think it's important to realize it's not just about biomechanically being faster, but also how doing things properly can bring us satisfaction as well as lift our energy. Well, since we're on that note, um, we wanted to address some of the things that we feel like um, both for ourselves and then certainly others, um, things that stop training with excellence, that, that prevent you from achieving excellence in your training. And so certainly some of those elements that you just described, that's clearly from your own experience, um, and I'm sure others can relate. But uh, what are some of the other ones that you were thinking of? I think on a day-to-day basis, the thing that I'm able to most quickly identify is just my being tired. And I don't mean just like my body's tired. I think it's the deep down bone tired. And I think a better word for that would be weary. It's kind of, there's a lot of things that go on in life, right? Our lives are are so complex and things that happen, we're always responding to it, whether we are processing it and healing from it or it's there and we have yet to discover that it's bothering us or that it's even a hurt. So I think that when at least the last couple of years when I've been like physically tired, I've also realized that I'm deep down bone tired and I just need rest. Yeah, there's probably two elements involved in that. The one is just the prolonged weariness that um, babies gave <laughs> <Yes>. us. <laughs> during that, that, uh, so yeah, certainly just sleeplessness or even if you're sleeping, um, you, you, I mean, you understand if you've got something that's just dragging at you emotionally uh, for a sustained period of time, then that produces that kind of weariness. And kids can do that uh, because you're 
totally emotionally invested in them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and relationships in general, actually, any relationship can do that. And many do, even good ones, uh, because you're just devoting your emotional energy to that relationship. So on a smaller scale then, too, uh, even within a period of prolonged weariness, um, and, and I, I would, you know, contrast that with uh, even just mental weariness, something like depression or despairing, you know, even any of those kinds of things. Um, within that, we still see kind of like a bit of ups and downs throughout. And one of the things, so I'll, I'll bring bring in some science on this too that can be helpful for all of us. Um, Daniel Pink wrote the book When, something about, I can't remember the subtitles, like The Secrets of Perfect Timing or something. And in that book, he discusses how we respond physically, emotionally, mentally to just even times of day. And so there's a little bit of variation from one person to another. There's, there's some different kinds of people in terms of daytime. But most of us follow a pretty similar pattern, which is, um, you know, first thing in the morning, not necessarily too early, but first thing in the morning for whomever, you know, for whatever time that means for us, um, tends to be a highly energized time. Um, it's a time when we're a little bit more productive um, once we've kind of gotten, you know, gotten started, if you will. Um, and then right right after lunchtime or kind of that early afternoon period, there's a kind of slump that happens. It's emotional and cognitive and certainly physical slump. That's why, you know, the afternoon nap is a real thing. And in many cultures, it's an actual thing as well. Um, so there's that. But uh, then we kind of see an uplift in productivity happen again after that slump. Whether or not we actually rested during that slump, we tend to see kind of a little resurgence and then before, you know, the kind of the fall off at the end of the day when we're just tired. So there's something to that. But even more, he actually studied, Dan Pink studied how uh, physical activity responds to that. And he found in their studies that um, you actually can, in terms of working out during certain times of day, during the first part of the day, certainly first thing in the morning, your body is better able to build strength and grow in, in like strength, muscular capacity, those kinds of things, um, higher degrees of performance after that afternoon slump when you have a little bit of a resurgence there, especially if you're well-rested. But, um, you can, you know, we can debate that in a lot of different contexts, but what this really speaks to me, Andy, is as you're talking about weariness, um, I know for myself, those times when I feel the most weary tend to be when I'm trying to, in terms of when I'm trying to run, um, is after my day has already happened substantially, whether that's, you know, if it's on a weekend, if I try to do a long run in the afternoon on Saturdays, it's significantly harder for me to motivate to do it, but also just for me to get my body into the groove. It's harder later in the day than it is earlier in the day. And interesting. yeah, and in many ways, certainly some of you listening um, can probably relate to that and others can say, ah, I'm not sure that's true for me. Uh, but the science does support that there's some there's a consistent trend to that as well. And so whether that's true specifically for you or just finding what are the times of day when you physically respond better to activity. Um, and we see kind of those peaks and valleys happen in a longer sustained sense, certainly, but also even just within a single day. So it's important to recognize that. Now, there's a couple others here on the list. Um, I did want to just mention for me, one of the things that tends to stop my excellent training the most are distractions. When, when there are distractions present while I'm trying to engage with uh, training, and it doesn't even matter what the training is I'm trying to do. I'll give you an example today. I was just trying to, um, you know, get myself ready for a simple 40-minute cross-training workout on a zero runner, and, um, you know, every, everybody was around. I was trying to work out after work today, and so the boys were around. Andy was trying to do something too, and so there's just distractions present, and it was harder. It wasn't, of course, it's harder to just do it when there are, you know, people demanding attention like little kids, um, 
but it was also just harder to want to do anything. Like I didn't even want to get started. And it's hard to explain that outside of the simple fact that I was just distracted and, and the distraction was keeping my attention away from my immediate goal there. Um, and that can happen to me any time of the day in something as simple as just if I have my phone out when I'm trying to get ready for a run and some of those things, it always demotivates me without fail. If my phone is out while I'm trying to get ready for a run, I am less motivated and it's harder for me to get out the door and go running. Mm, interesting observation. I bet that happens for a lot of us actually having the phone out. It, dep- it depends on what it is that's attracting your attention. Cause sometimes it can inspire or motivate you too. you know, what are you, what are you actually thinking about while you're doing that? But, but for it me, always it's always time. Yeah, you know, that's it true. always, it always wants, I mean, whatever we're on, takes away our time (laughs) to start right well there's a couple others on the list what else were you thinking andy this is kind of an odd one but sometimes i fear other people's like perception of me and like worry that they're gonna think that i'm taking myself too seriously or that i'm too self-focused or that i think highly of myself and i know this sounds like kind of a silly thing because it's like a projection it's not an actual thing but i do i fear that um and then another thing i have in here is just poor time management I am not training with excellence because I'm I'm not scheduling my time as I should. And I get, well, kind of goes with distraction. I get distracted by other things. Sure. I, I do want to make a comment about the um, per other people's perception of me or just taking myself too seriously. Because um, I've talked to others who will actually say, I don't take myself that seriously and I don't want to take myself that seriously. So I'm not really interested in, you know, the idea of like kind of taking my training experience to the next level. Um, you know, I'm just not about that. And I, I, you know, I respect that. You certainly don't have to be like an all in runner. Um, I think that's fine. And I think you can still achieve excellence in what you're doing to whatever degree you're trying to do it. And I think this whole topic brings us to focusing on the process rather than the results that we're looking for. Yes. What a wonderful transition, Andy, because that's the oh, key point. <laughs> that's the key point that I took away from um, that, that dynamic from the, the Passion Paradox book that I've mentioned a couple of times now. They said, uh, get better at getting better is kind of the synthesis here. And I mentioned that in the blog post earlier this week as well. Um, and I think the key, the fundamental key to process over product with this kind of thing as a runner is understanding the the most important points, the key facets of that process. Um, you know, we have to know what contributes to our running experience to know how to get better at those things. And so the, you know, the point of you're not always just getting better in terms of like PRs and improvement in, cause that's the product, but you can, you can always do the process better. Every one of us can, especially if we understand how much is involved in that process. And I, the way I always describe that, even just as Andy and I were talking earlier, um, it's there are an infinite number of things in your life that are impacting or contributing or influencing um, your running experience, your training. And so you can always find something. And I think the key is finding out what things are having some kind of negative impact and trying to find how I can change that. If I can change it, you can't always change that. But if you can, what can you do about it? And we had talked about in a previous podcast, incremental gains. And I think that's important to be thinking about as we're talking through and we're discussing excellence, because I think at least my tendency is like, oh, there's so many things that I need to do to be excellent. And I feel overwhelmed at the thought of trying to be perfect and doing everything immaculately. And that's not the point. I'm very satisfied 
everyone that I am stretching, doing mobility, like occasionally doing some like core and exercises. That is my incremental gain. And if you're not stretching, that is a really good place to start because mobility is a key factor in running. I want to give a totally different kind of example about this, this incremental gain thing that's just so fascinating to me. And I cannot, I'm trying so hard to remember where I read this. It was in a book and I think it was in the book about how to become a self-learner. I don't remember what what the actual title of that book is. But um, so this guy is writing about all of these ways that you, you improve yourself, incremental gains, right? And he gives the example of Benjamin Franklin. You ready huh. for this? This is really interesting. So Benjamin Franklin, as we all know, was uh, certainly an Im- impactful figure historically. Well, one of the things that he did personally, and you don't see this a ton in his writing, which is why it's interesting. Um, he outlined what he believed to be, it was like 12 or 14 of the most important, the most fundamental character attributes. And it was things like humility, companionship, you know, like the like key things, important things. And then what he would do throughout, I don't know if it was like his entire life or just a significant portion of his adult life, certainly, um, he would spend like two to four weeks focused on one or two of those characteristics and trying to find ways to better develop it, to foster it in himself. And then after the end of those two to four weeks, he would reflect on whether it had improved over that time and then move on to the next one. And he would continue to do that just cyclically moving through. And as a distance runner, I think, okay, that there's a lesson there for us because there's so many factors. Like you said, Andy, there's so much. You're not going to always try to improve everything about your craft, your training excellence. But if you incrementally adjust a certain thing for a period of time and really just hone that in and then the next period of time move on to a couple others and really just kind of, you know, long-term goals almost always happen slowly. So you have time. If nothing else, you have time. And again, I'm not really talking about performance goals here because there is an expiration date. We know that on our high end, our ceiling of performance, Uh, but there's no expiration on mastery of running. Yeah. And like we've been saying, it's the process that we want to make excellent. It's not being excellent at every element of the process all the time. Yeah. So I'm going to give I'm going to give a resource here because I think we could just talk at length about what are those facets that you can influence and what should you do to influence them. But there's there's a better resource out there to distill this for you. And that's Daniel's running formula. I, I here's the thing. I do not agree <laughs> philosophically, um, even physiologically. I don't agree with every aspect of what Daniel's outlines um, as good training and how you should approach training for distance runners. But I think the most important thing about his work is how clearly he delineates the different elements of distance running and then tackles how you can positively impact those. Um, so I, again, I don't necessarily agree with the meta perspective of training, but I certainly think that that's a valuable resource. So we're going to post a link because you could read the book and it's great. Um, but if you don't want to read the whole book to get, you know, to get the gist of what I'm trying to articulate, there's a great blog post out there by sweet sweat elite, sorry, sweat Um, And it's just like an outline of these things. So a great way to at least get a sense of it. Um, But even just, you know, the whole point of you can spend a period of time, but that period of time doesn't have to be more than like, you know, a particular workout this week. And during that particular run, I'm going to focus on 
this element. And then next week I'll come back to it again on a different run. You know, so it doesn't have to be like a month of just focusing on one thing. So I, I make that comment. I'm going to post that resource. It's great. It's going to be helpful for you to see just kind of these different categories. Uh, but you know, in, in its simplest form, we're really talking about things like strength and mobility, running economy. We're talking about aerobic capacity and lactate threshold, you know, those kinds of categories and how do you influence those things? What he doesn't get into are some of the broader life life-related categories, you know, how do your, your, your family situation or your relationships and social situation, your job, <laughs> your job certainly that, um, your self-perception and how, you know, how does that impact your running? And so Andy mentioned that with her own earlier. So I, I do want to share then a couple of dynamics within our own experience of, um, training with excellence under the auspices of how you understand your own training. So really just trying to narrow the focus a little bit further now. And Andy, you've got, you've got a really good contrast with this one. Um, times when you did times when you didn't understand your training, what, what's that been like for you? Now I am going to take it to a non-related example first, because I have a difficulty understanding the concepts of like math and (laughs) (laughs) he's laughing. He's like, yeah, um, I, I did well in math. Um, like I would still get good grades, but it would take me a long time to get it. And once I got it, I had it and I remembered it and I could do it every single time. So that gives you kind of an example, uh, and maybe some perspective on my, who I am. And that translates to running too. So if I understand Anytime there's math in the running, just <laughs> yeah, I need to figure that out before time because that's why it's a good thing you're not wearing a watch. <laughs> yeah. So when I understand a workout, I am able to dive into it better and really grasp what I'm supposed to be doing. And it also motivates me because if let's say my pace is supposed to be one thing, but I'm not hitting that pace. That doesn't matter because I understand the purpose of the run. So I can still fulfill the purpose of the run and um, complete it without having that discouragement of not hitting the paces. Now, I do have to deal with that. Um, It's a human thing, I think, when you don't achieve your expectations. Well, I do want to just draw on an example that you share with me quite a bit on that, which is um, the time in, I think it was high school, right? The time when um, you had a workout that you were supposed to be doing and you were struggling with it. And so (laughs) enter Dave Hodgkinson. Uh, So Hodge. Blog (laughs) post without mentioning. Yeah, we got, at some point we got to tell Hodge that we keep talking about him. Yeah, So (laughs) at some point we do. Hodge, we've been talking about you a lot. Um, So Hodge took you, you know, mid-workout and he's like, okay, we're making a change. He's like, this isn't going well. Here's what we're going to adjust. Remind me what. So I was supposed to be going mile pace. And so he just cut it down to shorter distance. Shorter intervals. So he's like, the purpose of this workout is to run your mile race pace. And right now we're not hitting it and it's becoming a different kind of workout. So we're just going to change it. It's fine. We're just going to do shorter intervals. So two things at, at play there. The first is understanding the purpose of the run. Obviously, he he knew that and he communicated that to you, the purpose of this run. Um, in that instance, it was running economy. So anytime you're doing mile pace repeats, you're not talking about necessarily fitness building nearly as much as you're talking about running economy um, because that pace is just a little bit too aggressive. For, and Hodge is a master at that. Yes, he is. Um, so running economy being the goal. And then the second element, you know, so you understand the purpose of the run. The second element is how can you adjust 
in a situation like that to still achieve that purpose? And the answer was simple for Hodge, you know, understanding that. And it was, if we need to really make sure we're grasping the running economy side of this workout, it doesn't have to be that long of an interval. Let's shorten the interval so you can make sure you're hitting that high end aggressive pace without blowing up your legs because you were struggling with the pace at a longer interval. That, by the way, is really hard to do by yourself on the fly um, without really a, just a studied approach to, you know, why am I doing this run? What can this run look like if I need to make changes to still achieve that purpose? And it was really helpful for me, Zach, when you told me about the purpose of the steady state runs. And even though I just feel terrible, you were telling me like, I would rather you do steady state effort for eight miles than try to end up doing like what feels like a tempo and cut it short to five. Here she is trying to run um, this, you know, harder effort. It was near tempo type effort thing um, in terms of just because she was struggling. But it doesn't it doesn't need to be that hard because the point of the run is simply to achieve an elevated aerobic state. And there's such a big window there of what has value that so many of us don't think about something like that. But it doesn't have to be that fast as long as it's still elevating your your heart rate to a decent enough aerobic state. The point of it was to get in the amount of time, the volume of running at that elevated state. So I'll give I'll give just an example then um, in my own experience. Uh, this one actually points to when I was coaching high school. So any of you WAMA athletes out there listening, yeah, I'm talking to you, Grant, because I know you're listening. So Grant was on the team when I was coaching West Michigan Aviation Academy's high school cross country. And uh, the background there, the very short background is um, the school had no sports, zero sports, and decided, okay, what's an easy sport to add? Well, cross country happens to be pretty easy to add, um, kind of a low upfront cost scenario. So we were like, all right, let's start a cross-country team. Now, starting a cross-country team at a school that had no sports generally suggests that these athletes had very little, you know, some of them certainly did, um, but most or many at least had no experience in cross-country or potentially even no experience in any sports, organized sports at all. And so what does that mean? That means it's just the, the level of understanding is low. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I but think most high schoolers. Absolutely. Pretty low. Yeah. And if any of you coach middle school, um, I know a few, a few of our friends do. So I know some of you might be listening and you might coach middle school and you can relate to that. Understanding is low. That being the case, I took the approach and I don't think that this is terribly unique to me, but I took the approach that I wanted to make sure that these new runners understood everything we were doing, at least to the extent of why we were doing it to influence our ultimate goal. Um, and, and I, you know, I kept that really simple. I just want to make you stronger, better, faster, right? Um, that was, that was kind of the ultimate goal in that sense. So everything we did, I could always tie back to that. And if I couldn't, I wasn't going to do it. I'll just tell you that right away. And if an athlete could say, Hey, I don't get why we're doing this. You explained it to me and that doesn't make sense. That would raise in my mind a question of maybe we don't need to be doing it that way or do it differently. Even down to, so this is Grant, you can confirm this if you want to. Um, we One year, we were getting ready for the regional meet. We had qualified for regionals, um, and we were getting ready for the meet. 
Actually, I can't remember. Does everyone qualify for? Re- I think everyone qualifies for regional. So we're getting ready for the meet, and we knew that year that it was going to be on a course that was especially uneven, just lumpy ground all over the place. And so one of the things I told these the varsity team that was getting ready then was we needed to add in an element in our routine that better strengthened our ankles. It's not that our ankles were weak. It was the end of the cross country season, so a lot of that was in place. But we really hadn't intentionally focused on some of that, and I was concerned that um, the instability would impact performance as it often does in cross country. So um, I gave them this, this really funny drill routine that so many of you are familiar with, something you know, many of us call them ins, outs, ups, downs, things like that. Well, I added a few different things. We did a several elements there of this routine, and it was funky looking. It was kind of awkward. Uh, but all I could do, all I had to do is explain to these athletes, this is why we're doing it, and this is why it's, it's important. And they bought right in, no question, because we understand why that's going to help benefit our ultimate goal. And I guess that's the one takeaway that I want to just emphasize is with these brand new runners, as I'm coaching, I coached there for four years, as I'm coaching these brand new runners, um, I, I don't think I really struggled at all with buy-in. And the reason why was large part because there, there was no need to doubt why we were doing the things we were doing. And if you can understand that, um, as Andy was saying, you know, my, my mental state, my mindset when I'm engaging with that training is so much better when I understand why. So there's a lot to that. Um, we can get into the specifics of, you know, why do you do an easy run at a certain effort and why do you do those so often? And this is another point where I seem to disagree with a lot of common running plans out there. But I, th- I think the, the easy run is actually one of the most important elements in the majority of your training phases. But, um, you know, getting into all of that really just speaks to the point of, um, Go back to like Daniel's running formula that I mentioned earlier. Understand the seven or eight different facets there and the kinds of things that impact them and then really get a sense for what is it that I need the most of and how do I develop that well as I'm reaching toward my goal. And there's a lot of things that we can do. So it's really just kind of trying to focus on one thing at a time and the incremental gains and really move toward that. Yeah, and I think a lot of runners have said this. Um, other very wise people have said this and Getting to the start line is the hardest part of marathons because the training can beat us up. So focusing on doing these things with excellence in our limited time, doing things well, will help us get to the start line in the best shape possible. Yeah. And you know what? That's a great transition into our expert advice for the week. So we've got Adam Hamolka coming back on in just a minute. And Adam is going to talk about some of the key things that you need to do for your body to be ready to run and engage with the training you're trying to do. So last week he talked about some of the common ailments that impact runners. This week he's going to inject now what can you do about it. And especially long term, how do these things get you to the start line healthy and strong? All right, Adam, welcome back again. Thanks for joining us once more. So last time we talked about common um, source of injuries or you know problematic areas for runners, and you just talked about the hips and foundation in your pelvis, um, the key to everything else, as you were putting it. So the question today is, what can we do, knowing that these are some of the potential problems we're going to face, what can runners do to strengthen or avoid injury? Yeah, you know, it'll be 
sound like I'm kind of in a broken record right now because I always get back into this and it's a hot topic for me to keep talking about. Um, but once we've kind of identified that there is some instability within the foundation of someone's hips and in the, in the pelvis, um, you know, that's going to end up leading into Achilles tendonitis. Uh, it's going to lead into IT band syndrome and, and tendonitis, uh, bursitis up and through the hips, uh, maybe some uh, runner's knee where it's a, an inflammation of the uh, cartilage behind the kneecap. So all those things are really common. Most runners who've been doing it for a while have experienced some of that to some degree. Um, and they're always hot buzzwords because, you know, everything is called a syndrome, which means that it's a collection of symptoms and there's not one specific cause of it. So we have to put all those pieces of the puzzle together so that we can collectively treat the syndrome and not just look at where the pain is being, is showing itself. Um, many cases, unless, um, you know, there's just like a blunt force trauma to an area, um, or a, a surgery or something, you know, those, we know there's pain because of a certain event. Uh, but with most runners, that's usually not the cause. Take out the people who might slip on some ice or hit a curb because they're not uh, paying attention too easily. and Slip on a cone, in Andy's case? Slip on a cone, perhaps. And, uh, and they fall, they get a good scrape, they smash their kneecap into the ground. We know why it's sore right there. So we, we, uh, um, we work on that acute injury. But most runners are going to have chronic injuries that have built up over uh, days, weeks, months, maybe even years at some time. The common pattern that I've seen is that there's just a lot of tightness in people's hips and a lot of weakness in people's hips. And some of that is just due to um, a lack of attention to those areas, a lack of attention to warm up or cool down activities. Um, we have a lack of time in our society anymore to where when someone gets a chance to get out for a run, it's get home, throw your shoes on and bounce out the door, get back inside and throw your shoes off and get back into real life with very little attention to any sort of warm up uh, or any sort of cool down or stretching afterwards. Um, and we just um, are a little bit more sedentary throughout our normal day. A lot of people are, are sitting at desks or in meetings, uh, computer work, on their phones, driving from meeting to meeting. All these are just very sedentary parts of our day, which um, just make our butt muscles glorified cushions. You know, we don't use them until we want to stand up and then jump up for a 10 mile run after we've been sitting for six to eight hours a day. And you just can't make up, um, that lack of activity throughout the day in your first quarter mile of a run and expect you to feel good with that run. Uh, so most of my experience has shown me that a very common way that we can reduce the risk of injury. Let me just say it like that, because we can't always prevent injury, but to minimize that risk of injury, um, really keeping our hips mobile, uh, most specifically our hip flexors, uh, keeping our hip flexors stretched out because they get to be sitting in a very shortened position all throughout our day. Uh, and then we ask them to do a whole lot of stretching and leg lifting as we go through our runs throughout, uh, throughout our runs. Uh, so there are specific ways that we can do a dynamic warm up prior to our run so that we can get our muscles activated, just wake them up, get them doing some things that we want them to do over a long period of time while we're out for a run. And all we're really doing is trying to 
truly just wake them up. Say, hey, this is what I'm going to want you to do for a long time. So let's just wake up now and, and get things moving. So there are a series of uh, dynamic warm-ups that mimic our running form, but really slow it down and uh, specifically target muscle groups. So whether it be our hip flexors, our hamstrings, um, our glutes, our calf muscles, we can wake all of them up with just a, a few really easy, simple movements that can make the first half mile of your run feel a whole lot better than just simply tossing your shoes on and going out for a run. Um, another good thing is if you don't necessarily have that time to do three to, to five minutes worth of dynamic warm-up drills, is just take that first mile of your run easy. You know, just let your body adapt to that new activity that you're doing. You got your shoes on, you're in a hurry to get all your clothes on, especially in winter now, it's gonna take half an hour for you to get all the necessary apparel on so you don't freeze while you're out running. So let your body adapt to um, that relaxation of running. You're getting into your running form, uh, you're shaking off the tightness and the weakness of the day. You know, Start off nice and easy. There's no sense in, in jumping into race pace right out of the gates. Uh, for one, it's not going to feel good. For two, you're really going to uh, put yourself at risk for, for straining something um, or just getting yourself really tight. And then the rest of your run, you're just not going to have that muscle activation. And then um, another good thing that we can do to kind of minimize that risk of injury is just make sure you have the proper equipment that you need. I mean, as runners, it's really easy. We need shoes. Everything else is negotiable. I mean, you can run in blue jeans if you really want to. <laughs> Not necessarily the preferred choice, but you can. Uh, you can run in basketball shorts like I did in, in high school cross country for many years. Um, but shoes are something that you really shouldn't skimp on. Uh, you know, be prepared to spend uh, 100 to $160 in a pair of shoes uh, knowing that those shoes are going to carry you for three to 400 miles. Um, and it just kind of varies based on your running style and your, and your body type, how long those shoes do last for you. Um, but don't skimp on those. Make sure you're turning your shoes over pretty regularly. Try to maintain a good uh, mileage log. So you know, roughly about how many miles you have on a pair of shoes. Um, or just look for those those signs that your body is telling you that you need more cushion. Um, I will typically see it in um, the bottom of my feet getting a little bit more sore either during or after runs or my calf muscles starting to fatigue a little bit more um, a little earlier during my runs or just in general, my knees and my hips making a whole lot more noise when I wake up in the morning getting out of bed and moving around. Those are some ways that I listen to my body when I know that my, my shoes might be wearing, wearing out and I'm just not getting that cushion and that, that shock absorption, uh, that I need from them. So, uh, don't skimp on shoes, uh, keep a good contact on, on your mileage for those. And, um, that just makes the rest of your systems feel a lot more comfortable. So I, it's not necessarily just me getting old when I feel that way. Maybe it's actually just on any new shoes. <laughs> Let's just blame it on your shoes. Great. I love that one. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate that, Adam. So I know that you've got a couple of resources that we can see and share to show some examples of some of those, especially like pre-run drill routine kind of thing. 
And uh, we'll certainly always continue to share the kind of work that you're doing as you're helping us as well and the insights that we're gaining. I know Andy has talked a lot about how this summer, especially just learning how to activate her key muscle groups is something totally new for her in the last, you know, since we started working with you and it's really changed things for us. So we appreciate that. Yeah, it's great. I'll provide some uh, workouts that will be uh, split up into three different categories. One will be a dynamic warm-up set of exercises that you can do prior to a run uh, or after. They're just as good to be stretches. Um, I'll also provide one that's uh, just a very good basic foundational hip and core strengthening uh, routine. Um, And then also uh, some static stretches that can be that can be done after you're done running so that you can take that time and let your muscles relax and gain a little bit more flexibility. So those will be available for you here soon. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thanks again. And we'll look forward to the next chance to have you on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, that's all we got for you for this episode. And of course, don't forget to head on over to a2zrunning.com slash episode five for a number of those links and resources mentioned throughout, including the documents that Adam referenced to outline and demonstrate those routines he discussed. Thank you, Adam. It's going to be really helpful for us and our readers. Absolutely. So don't forget that, of course, with the many questions that are out there, we would always love to try to help and support you in any way. Not that we have every answer, uh, but certainly... Maybe Adam does. <laughs> Adam Adam certainly has many. So whether it's a question for Adam or a question about your training or anything else that you feel like we can help address, we would love to try and support you as you pursue excellence in your training. Yeah, and if you have anything you'd like to share with us too, something that you've experienced that you'd like to add, we also want to hear that too. If you didn't notice, we love featuring the stories, anecdotes, and ideas that are coming at us from every direction. So we'd love to include you in that too. And there's also social media. So stay in touch. It doesn't have to be until next week. You can talk to us tomorrow. And we'll hit you back on that Fanstagram or whatever else they call those things <laughs> that kids Instagram. love. And we're on Strava and all the other great places where you can find things about runners and running. Because we love it. <laughs>